and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of the Fundamism Podcast. I am your host, Paul J. Long, excited for our uh, little memorable experience today. But before we get into that, I would really like to shout out our sponsor, Charlie Hustle. Charlie Hustle uh, has been doing some amazing things in the Kansas City community. Go to 1kforkc.org to learn more about what they're doing to help uh, impoverished families uh, assist them with some of the financial burden associated with COVID. Uh, in addition, make sure you check out charliehustle.com. I myself am wearing my uh, my throwback Mamba shirt for Worlds of Fun today. You can learn more again by visiting charliehustle.com. Now, of course, charliehustle.com and Charlie Hustle is our sponsor, but uh, maybe, just maybe, after today's guest, we'll have a new one. Who knows? Guys, you're in for a treat. We have the founder of Plaza Aesthetics and Wellness. We got uh, Curve Model and Body Positive Advocate uh, and lover of Zoom, my friend, Dr. Amber Botros. What's good, doctor? Hey, Paul. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No, listen, this has been a long time coming. You and I, I know. back and forth. You bought a new house. I did. Your business is rolling. You're doing big things. Before we talk about all that stuff, I want to know, because I'm sure a big move and uh, obviously COVID hitting impacted your business. Sometimes you kind of just need a relief. What do you do for fun? Sure. Um, I would say anything in the visual and performing arts. So unfortunately, during this time, it's been somewhat scarce, but I definitely love um, anything, you know, musical arts, performing arts, um, visual arts, also being in modeling. That's kind of been one of my releases. Um, I was a musician growing up and then didn't do much after, you know, college and then medical school and residency. So kind of switched to a different form of the arts. But I would say anything within the arts is my number one love. Well, that is absolutely fantastic because I think that it definitively plays to the audience of the Fundamism podcast listener. And uh, the reason why I say that is Fundamism can be defined as the fundamentals of a fun and optimistic lifestyle. So whatever you do for fun, whatever kind of operates as a as a brain pattern interrupt to get you out of all the negative uh, fear, anxiety, and depression that could potentially be going on in your head and brings a smile to your face, well, that is a fundamental. And so whenever I hear somebody that associates with music and theater and art, uh, it really hits me in the feels because those are things, obviously, that I'm super attached to, as many of you guys know. So you were a musician growing up. What did you play? <laughs> I played the flute and I actually have, most people don't know this, I have a degree, um, it, it's a Bachelor of Arts, but it's in music and biology. So I ended up um, kind of doing that through college. That's what paid for my college. So I didn't have to bring a lot of money to the table. So um, I thought maybe I wanted to be a musician at one point in my life. Do you still play? Do you have a flute? I don't. So I still have the, so the flute's the other way. (laughs) That's the clarinet. (laughs) Um, I actually, I do still have the flute, but it, um, the pads haven't been repaired in probably like 20 years. So it's, it's not functional right now, but one of these days. I actually threw you for a loop. That wasn't a clarinet. That was a recorder. That's the only. Oh, okay. I played that in the third grade and that's, that's, that's all, that's basically the skill set that I have as a music. (laughs) Uh, so visual and performing arts, obviously outside of music. So does that include theater? I mean, do you enjoy going and watching people actually perform in that regard as well? Absolutely. And, you know, also like the symphony, even small music venues. So live jazz, that's something I've really missed, you know, going to a small intimate club where maybe there's, 
you know, a singer, um, a jazz singer or jazz, jazz group. That's something that, you know, I would say I was doing on a regular basis before uh, the pandemic hit. Mm. Well, obviously it is, uh, is impacted so many and, uh, you know, those of you guys listening, we're actually recording this on, what is today? November 3rd? November 2nd? What is today? I think it's November 2nd. It's the day before the election. Yes, today's so, November 2nd. Uh, so by the time you indulge and listen to this Fundamism Podcast listener, uh, we will have uh, understood, hopefully, the election results. And whatever way you lean, I just want to let you guys know, you'll be okay. Like, everything will be okay. <laughs> so as we start to progress uh, through... Your journey, Amber. Uh, can I call you Amber or Dr. Bochek? Yeah, that's perfect. I prefer Amber. Okay, cool. So um, tell me about, without getting into your political view or anything like that, tell me about how um, th- this landscape has played a role in your life, either personally or professionally, and specifically everybody just kind of doing this all the time. Sure. Um, so my business, I, I own a medical spa and it is very much similar to the clientele that you would see more at a salon and spa. So I'm technically a doctor's office and I like to be considered as a doctor's office. Um, but you know, when you go to the physician's office, usually you're making your appointments out monthly or every six months. And you know, there's not much fluctuation when you see a physician, they're pretty much packed all day, every day. Um, but you know, at a, at a medical spa, we're, like I said, much more like a salon and spa and the past two weeks have actually been kind of slow for me. Um, during the pandemic, initially when we had the shelter at home order, because I am a physician, I was able to stay open through the pandemic. We were running a very, very small scale. I was seeing patients individually and making sure I was screening them first. We had a, had a very strict protocol. So I definitely was slower then, but nothing catastrophic to the business. Um, and then we really had a burst once, um, I was able to see patients more regularly and all my other staff were working. And then the past couple of weeks, it has been definitely, it has been slower. And I think that's in um, anticipation of the coming election, as well as the weather, you know, we had snow earlier in the week. So anytime there's a big fluctuation in weather, that always affects my business as well. Well, so speaking of impacting your business, you said that you you kind of, uh, you scaled down a little bit, obviously, because demand was affected or impacted by uh, the pandemic. I do know that you hired a, uh, a short-term receptionist uh, <laughs> that actually assisted you and was the whole reason why I got the opportunity to connect and meet with you. You know, I am a terrible friend in that uh, you are the significant other of uh, my very best friend in the world, John Stoner. And this is literally, uh, Amber, the, the first one-on-one discussion that we've ever really had, the real meaty conversation. You guys have been dating for a, a year and a half, two years, I don't know. Yeah, over a year. Jeez. So I have failed is my point. But uh, what made you want to hire John? Like he's not the, most, <laughs> he's not the strongest worker I've ever known. Well, desperate times call for desperate measures. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, for sure. So, so your role as a doctor, it truly fascinates me, specifically in the field that you're in. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But, you know, as a 39-year-old male, I'm getting older and... Uh, Newsflash, I can't do the things that I used to do, or maybe even don't try. I think that's important to say. But over time, what I feel like, you know, the aches and pains of growing old or sneaking up on me. And one of the things that is really, this is probably way too much information for you, but I am going to go book an appointment with you, as I told you via Facebook Messenger. Uh, one of the things that is really driving me crazy is when I go to bed at night, Amber, I swear to you, I get up four or five, six times a night to go to the bathroom. 
So is that a byproduct of potentially low testosterone levels? Because that's what I've identified as the core issue. Sure. I mean, I think it's definitely worth checking your testosterone level and, and getting a full physical exam. Um, there could be other things going on. I mean, it could be obviously your, your <laughs> oral intake, if you're drinking yes. a lot before you go sure. to bed, if that's changed. And also, you know, we always have to worry with men with um, their prostate and possibly an enlarged prostate, um, but it could be multifactorial. I, I wouldn't necessarily pin it on one thing, but I think it's definitely worth getting checked out. So as we start to age as men, um, when we hit our, you know, after we hit our peak of 18, uh, well, in the mid twenties, <laughs> we kind of start to go downhill. So men, I would say, uh, you know, on average start to lose about 1% of their total testosterone a year. So usually huh? when men turn, you know, late thirties, early forties, and some even start to see it earlier, they notice, you know, decrease in, in, in muscle mass, you know, more, um, difficulty after the gym in terms of post-workout recovery. Sure. They may not have the sex drive that they used to. It can often manifest as fatigue, even depression, um, low, you know, low mood, um, insomnia. There's, you know, a whole slew of symptoms, but that often can be tied to a low testosterone level. And it's pretty amazing to give a man just a little amount of testosterone. They often feel like they're 18 again. Well, uh, I'd be scared if, uh, if I exposed anybody to that level of me, cause I'm already, uh, too much for many now. Uh, so to go back to my roots and that 18 year old me, I think that would be overwhelming for, for some. How does that, so what you just described from a male perspective as we grow older, how does that run parallel or differ from say a female's growth and development over time? Sure. So women, their testosterone or their hormone levels, I would say overall, not just testosterone, you know, fluctuate with pregnancy, menopause, any sort of sometimes weight loss, weight gain, um, stress. It's, but you know, men are much easier to control overall women. Um, you know, you give them a little hormone and they, they may have huge mood swings mm. where men, you give them a little hormone and they, like I said, they feel like they're 18 again. So, um, women, I have to see a lot more closely and frequently and their, their levels are often adjusted in terms of hormone, um, much, much more regularly than men. Men are much, much easier <laughs> to replace their hormone levels. So you mentioned uh, potentially doing a, a full body physical. Is that something that you guys do? Talk to us a little bit about the full array of your services. Sure. So um, in terms of hormone replacement, if someone is possibly interested in getting their levels tested, they would book an appointment. Um, they would see myself and we would just kind of discuss, I would have you fill out a long questionnaire and then we would go through, um, you know, your symptoms, maybe what you've taken in the past or even herbal medications, over-the-counter medications, you know, obviously discuss medical history um, and then determine, you know, if it might be an option. And then um, I would get a full laboratory panel and we would sit down after we get the laboratory panel and discuss the levels, um, symptoms and um, budget, and then decide where we're going to go from there. So, um, you know, just because someone's interested, you know, it, it, it's definitely important to get someone's levels. But, um, you know, also as a physician, it's important for me to um, address the patient. So someone may have, you know, normal hormone levels, um, but when they see me, their symptoms are um, indicative of, of maybe a hormone deficiency. And at that point, depending on, you know, it, it may make sense to even trial hormone replacement therapy for maybe even three to six months and see if it makes any difference in their life. 
one of the things that you just referenced uh, just kind of helped uh, solidify or even maybe grow my admiration of you. Um, specifically, you referenced budget as being a factor that you weigh into a treatment strategy. And that's something that I don't always hear uh, folks in business say openly, at least in the initial prospect of doing mm -hmm. business together. So knowing that the cost of healthcare is rising, and we had this conversation briefly via text, how has that impacted your business? Has it at all? Are you seeing any impact from a, from a cost of healthcare uh, perspective messing sure. with you? So I don't accept insurance. So I have been, since I opened my business about six years ago, I'm technically what we call cash pay. Um, so when you come in and, and see me for an appointment, it's, you know, pay per visit. It's, you know, based off of the services that you're receiving. When patients do come in for hormone replacement therapy, we often um, usually, the reason I do this is I, I usually do a monthly plan. And um, the reason I do this is there's a lot of other clinics that will charge patients weekly. So maybe they're receiving hormonal um, therapy weekly. And sometimes patients, you know, if their budget's a little more strict, they may skip a dose. And so maybe they're coming in every other week to save money. And I really want what's best for the patient. I don't want to be nickeling and diming them. I want them to come in um, what's best for them, for their health, based off of the half-life of the hormone levels. It's not about, you know, what price is going to be best for them. I mean, obviously, we're taking into account your budget, but sure. I, I want to make sure that they're receiving the best treatment. Um, and they're not, um, sometimes they play this game with themselves, you know, oh, maybe I'll go every other week or I'll go once a month to save money where, you know, when you're on hormone replacement, it, sh it needs to be about your symptoms. Um, and I, I want patients to get the, the best treatment possible. So we often do a monthly program. Well, I know that, uh, that your particular um, business has won several awards, specifically in 2018 and 2019, recognized as one of the top med spas out there. Forgive my ignorance. Did I get that right? Is it that is correct. Uh -huh. okay. So that obviously tells me that your patients and those that believe in you feel as though you give them that well-rounded, uh, personalized experience. So uh, I can't wait to figure out what it looks like in my life. Uh, but long before you got here, uh, there was a series of events that led to this, this occupation. And you know, one of the things that I really like to showcase uh, with the fundamentalism philosophy is that it is possible to find work, to find an occupation that kind of highlights or runs parallel to your passions in life. And we're going to get to one of your significant passions, mm -hmm. but it really runs hand in hand with what you do for a living. So how did you land in this particular occupation? What did it take to get here? Sure. So I am a board certified primary care doctor. And what that means is I spent all of my <laughs> teens, 20s and early 30s in school. Um, so I went, uh, you know, obviously I did um, undergrad. I took a few years, a few extra years to do undergrad, took a year off, applied, um, took the MCAT, applied to medical school. Um, I went to Case UMB. It's the osteopathic school here in town. And then I ended up doing an allopathic residency in family medicine at Research Medical Center. Um, so again, I'm, I'm in family medicine. I've kept up my board certification, which I think is important as a physician. And um, I worked in full spectrum primary care. I used to do OB. I admitted to several hospitals. Um, I ran a clinic every day, eight to five. And I realized even though I really loved the patient care aspect, um, maybe that, that sect of medicine wasn't for me. So I ended up um, Coming back to work, work with HCA, I was working as a hospitalist or what's called a nocturnist. I worked 7P to 7A, so I worked 12-hour shifts at night. Wow. 
I did that for about seven years on nights. <laughs> and I think that's about the lifespan for uh, most hospitalists on nights is about, you know, five to seven years. That might be a max. Um, so I did that for several years. And, and during that time, um, I, I was approached um, by some businessmen who were interested in starting a medical spa um, and, and looking for physicians. And, um, you know, I, I kind of learned very quickly that, um, you know, there's a difference when um, a physician owns a, a, their own business, when a businessman owns a business, especially, you know, in medicine. And obviously businessmen, they're <laughs> monetarily motivated and any business owner has to be monetarily motivated. Um, but as a physician, you know, we're really trained to heal and help patients. And my, um, you know, my business model is really built around patient safety and satisfaction. So obviously I have to make money and I, I can't, <laughs> I have to have patients coming in and, and, and have, um, you know, resources to continue. But, um, you know, I'm not always looking at patients as, as being, uh, you know, dollar signs walking in the door. It's really um, treating their symptoms and making sure that they're getting the care that they're interested in. And I know we didn't discuss this earlier, but, um, you know, hormone replacement is actually a very small portion of what I do in, in my business. So I'd say that the majority of what I do is really aesthetic medicine. So um, botulism, toxin injections, filler injections, um, pharmaceutical grade skincare. I have lasers for resurfacing, lasers for hair removal, um, so that's probably more of, um, you know, that's obviously the, the bigger part of my business, even though, you know, I, I do love them equally. And, and at the end of the day, whatever, you know, my patients are the happiest with, as long as they're receiving good care, that's really what I want to focus my time and energy on. For sure. Well, what, what I can relate to uh, from what you just said is you could find your passion. You could find something that you thoroughly enjoy. Uh, with the overarching goal or desired outcome be in part to deliver some form of happiness or joy, not just to yourself, but others. But in that, we have to make a living, right? So as a speaker, I mean, my, my primary goal, I don't know if you could see this, I, I want to be the reason why people smile, like, and I want to give them tactical things or behaviors or tips to help them improve the amount of joy, fun, and fulfillment in their life. But I can't do that if I'm not making a living. I can't do that if I'm not feeding my family. So you definitely have to weigh both of those things. Uh, what I love about what you said is obviously you got into it uh, for the sole purpose of, and you didn't know this uh, and you didn't even reference it yet, but you want to empower others to love the skin that they're in, right? Is that, that's a thing. We want to empower others to love the skin that they're in. And you could do that as well by making a living, which is awesome. And you get to do something that you love. How did you identify this? Like, was there an epiphany moment in your life as a young child that you were like, I want to be a doctor or <laughs> did it just kind of land in your lap? It did more land in my lap when I was in um, high school. That's really when I had made the choice to go into medicine. And I still was kind of torn. I, I was very much interested in the arts, like I said before. And um, but I, I really excelled at math and science and that was, you know, what excited me. And so I also, um, am, am empath and very much care about helping people. And so I saw that as, um, kind of the right fit. It's, it's a career that I, um, would be able to be self-sufficient <laughs> and, um, also make, you know, obviously a decent income, but, um, incorporate my love for math and science and, um, helping others. My goodness. Uh, you just remember, I told you this was going to be organic and you were going to throw out things and we're going to go down paths, but 
you just said something uh, that that I too uh, feel on a regular basis um, in that you're an empath and I too am an empath, which has been a blessing and a curse from time to time. And so as the Fundamism Podcast listeners, if you're, if you're um, unaware or uneducated about what an empath is, um, there's very much an energy that surrounds us and the universe and that we hold inside. And there are people in this world like uh, Dr. Botros or Amber, as I am now going to call her in the future, um, that can actually feel energy. And to the point where if you come into a room and, and you're down or you're depressed or you're anxious or whatever, an empath might be able to feel that. And we don't necessarily know where it's coming from, but we might like get sick. We might physically feel something off in our body. And what sometimes that is, is we're feeling the energy of other people, which means that you could feed off the joy and fun and love and fulfillment of others and vice versa. We could feed off of uh, the negative aspect and the depressions and fears and, and anxiousness. So in your field, I got to believe you have a lot of folks that come to you that maybe aren't necessarily super confident or are really stressed about uh, the, the current version of themselves. How do you manage that knowing that you really do want people to feel good about themselves? You know, when patients come in for a consult, I always, and this would be more from an aesthetic standpoint, I always hand them a mirror and I ask, you know, what's your biggest concern? What's your reason for coming in today? And, you know, you may have someone, I may have someone walk in the office and their concern may not be anywhere what I would think their concern may be. You know, we, we, what we struggle with on a daily basis Often, um, you know, someone may have an eating disorder, but they're coming to me for weight loss. And you'd never think, you know, this woman, she may weigh 120, 130 pounds. Why should she be coming to a physician, you know, for weight loss or hormone replacement? Um, I may have, you know, a beautiful, beautiful, very young girl coming into me um, who would like to change her appearance and may have body dysmorphia. And it's kind of balancing that. Obviously, I'm a business owner, but, you know, I, I, there are pa several patients that I, when they come in to see me, I'll say, well, maybe this would be a good for, fit for you, but this might not be a good fit. And, you know, I, I obviously risk them going somewhere else. Um, but I'm the one who has, has the conscience, who has to live with myself at night. And, you know, I want to make sure all of my patients, you know, I, I am open and honest with them. And this also ties into, you know, the body positive aspect um, you know, feeling comfortable and confident in the skin that you are born in and not necessarily trying to change your appearance. And um, it is, there are several occasions that I have patients that maybe want to do a procedure or would like certain injections um, that they think would make themselves more beautiful. But, um, you know, maybe they've had a whole slew of injections at other med spas and they're maybe, you know, over injected. And, and it, it's my, it's my job as a physician to say, you know, maybe we'll try this or, um, you know, let, let's wait this time and I'll see you in three or six months, or maybe I'll even see you in a month and let's see how you're doing and see if it's a, it's a better idea at that point. So. Have you ever lost a client because of that? Oh, I, I think I've lost several clients because of that. Wow. Yes. <laughs> That's admirable. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that really goes to show you that you, you do genuinely care about those with whom you work. So, um, you know, sometimes sometimes we see ourselves differently than others do, right? And our own insecurities, and you're right, this is the perfect segue into uh, something that I'm really excited to talk about as well, um, but but body image. And so Melissa, my wife, uh, who I'm not sure you've had the opportunity to meet yet in person, uh, but we're going to do dinner at your brand new house soon. So, uh, <laughs> uh, But Melissa, she'll probably kill me if she heard me say this. She's got this issue with her eyebrows. So when I see my wife, I mean, 
from the moment that I laid eyes on her in the fifth grade, she has been <laughs> the girl that I wanted to get with. But she has uh, what she what she says as is no eyebrows or super thin eyebrows or light eyebrows or whatever it may be. And I didn't realize that this was a thing. I have never, ever, Amber, looked at my wife and said, oh, my gosh, you need more eyebrows or your eyebrows are thin. But man, it's something that she she thinks about all the time and she w- wants to look into things. She just got them highlighted or something like that. Is so is this even a thing? Like, is this something that girls talk about? Because I've never heard any of my guy friends say, you know what I need on a girl or in a girl? Some wonderful eyebrows. <laughs> Actually, it is a very common concern. We don't. And so I do have estheticians that work for me and we do um, brow tinting. So that would uh, give the appearance of very like light eyebrows, um, a more robust appearance if, if they're tinted. We don't do a procedure called microblading and that's probably the most common procedure right now. Um, but even for myself, that's a procedure that I've undergone. Really? <laughs> so I, I never looked in the mirror and said, you know, my eyebrows are considerably too thin, but you know, it's kind of an in vogue procedure. And I know myself, you know, a little goes a long way. And when your brows are done, um, you know, I, I once heard this analogy and I think it's very true. The uh, brows are the nipples of the face. <laughs> <laughs> and I think uh, that would help put you into the, per- that would help put the brows into perspective, how important they are um, to frame the face. And so um, this is something a lot of women do. I would say the majority of women, there's very few women I know that don't either tint their eyebrows or put some sort of eyebrow it's almost like a mascara on the brows or a pomade to make them darker or use a brow pencil. It's very, very common. Um, you know, but whatever makes a woman feel most comfortable and confident, I mean, you know, whether that be some small alteration or large alteration, you know, that that's totally up to them. But, um, you know, we're, we're all born, you know, differently and some have very light eyebrows and some have dark eyebrows, but we're all beautiful. Sure. 100%. Especially if that's what we choose to focus on, right? Like I I feel like we could be hypersensitive to the things that aren't going right or that we don't like, uh, and be completely unaware of all the beauty and awesomeness that we are, that we offer or that we're engaged in. And so that takes us to the the segue into being a, a body positive model. And so I love that word robust. We don't have a robust, you know, what, but you do have a robust social media following at nearly 310,000 followers. And, uh, and that is all because you have chosen to, to be yourself, to embrace the authentic nature, your genuine spirit of who, who you are and what you have to offer. So you are a curve model. I believe that's what we call them in the streets. Is that accurate? I think plus size model is probably the most um, common term, but curve or plus model, correct. Okay, beautiful. So, um, which is interesting because like when I saw, when I saw plus size model, I wondered, well, does that have a negative? I love the thought of a curve model. That seems mm-hmm. like it's, uh, it, it's probably better received or, mm-hmm. um, you know, you never know how people are offended these days. Or So sure. I, I love the fact that you're, you're setting aside that, uh, that clarity, because I wouldn't know what to call a curve model or plus size model. Well, plus doesn't necessarily mean, have a negative connotation. I I think there are some women maybe that 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 could bother them. And obviously we need to be cognizant of that. Um, But for myself, plus um, I'm a little extra and I don't mind being a little extra. More ways than one, right? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. All right. Well, so how did you 
How did you fall into being a plus size model? Like what were the events that led up to that? Sure. Um, so it is kind of an odd transition. Um, so when, when I opened my business about six years ago, my business neighbor, Natalia Meyer, she is um, like a high-end couture designer, but she's also a seamstress. That is her bread and butter, and that's what she does day in, day out. Our businesses are next door to each other. And so we became fast friends. And after about a year of being close friends, she asked me, she was like, hey, would you uh, start modeling for me? And I kind of looked at her like, uh, okay, yes, sure. And it wasn't something that, you know, I, I pursued myself. She kind of, you know, picked me up as one of her close friends. And, and the way that, you know, she picks her models, um, it's often based off of emotion and the friendship she, that she has built um, with her models. So, um, you know, this was probably about four or five years ago when I started doing this. And, um, you know, plus size modeling has really taken off since then. But, you know, in Kansas City at that time, and even now there aren't a ton of plus size models, um, but she was one of the few designers um, that has always designed for women of all shapes and sizes. And, um, you know, I'm sure you've seen a lot of this in the media. It's, I can, I can see it both ways, you know, as, as a woman of larger size, I'm about a size 14, 16, it's nice to be able to walk into a boutique and purchase something in my size. Um, but I also do understand from a designer standpoint, sometimes that's very difficult to design, you know, it's, it's what they, what they call a sample size, which is like a size, you know, four, perhaps that's an easy size to design. And, um, you know, a, a lot of, um, high-end designers, they'll start with that size and all their models that they pick. And then they kind of decide what is going to go, you know, for production. You can't necessarily go to production up to a size 30 or 40, um, understand that, but there are a lot of brands that are starting to do that, which is really exciting. We didn't have that years ago. And I know growing up, um, I'm six feet tall. So I was always kind of a little bit larger kid, but I, you know, growing up, I would have growth spurts. There were, there were times where I was a little bit on the chunky side. There were times where I was on the thinner side, you know, as children, we always change and we're having growth spurts. And then sometimes we're going the other way. And, um, you know, I, I never necessarily, I didn't know that I would necessarily be plus size, but I, I was always very tall too. Um, so it was very difficult for me to find clothing. And, and also growing up, I never met another woman who looked like me. I always felt like, you know, my friends all looked a little bit, you know, everyone, everyone, we all are so very unique. Um, but I never met another woman who had a very similar body habitus to mine. And it wasn't until I was in my almost mid to late thirties where I started to feel very comfortable and confident, but you know, you didn't see women that look like me on the front of a magazine that, that was not, that, you know, we saw, um, you know, Kate Moss and um, Cindy Crawford and, and you know, this Naomi Campbell and the supermodels, you know, the early 90s that I would have, you know, that would have maybe um, could have kind of that's what I would have seen as, as being beautiful and normal because yeah. that that's what was recognized in media as being most beautiful. And that's what you know, that those are the women that. Um, men had like, you know, as boys, you guys probably had, you know, women plastered to your walls. Yeah. Um, you, you wouldn't have seen a woman my size plastered to a wall, but that has changed. So it's, it's exciting to see that, um, you know, women like um, Ashley Graham is probably the w most well-known plus size model. Um, you know, she has an amazing fan base. Um, Lizzo, who's a, a musician. Um, and now also, you know, I would say she's, um, she's definitely a model now as well. Um, these women that have a, a wonderful voice, um, they're, 
you know, very intelligent and um, they're able to bring a lot more to the table than, you know, just just being a body and, and, and have really done a lot for um, women of all shapes and sizes. Well, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Um, so, you know, one of the things that really jumped off the page at me is I've never met another woman who looked like me. And then you went on to say that you really didn't find your confidence um, and and maybe even, I'm paraphrasing, your acceptance of who you were or what you looked like until your 20s or 30s. So how, so how did that manifest when you were younger? Were you comparing yourself to others? Did it impact your, uh, your clothing and the way that you carried yourself? What was your confidence like yeah. growing up? I, I think, um, you know, I, I, because I was always taller and then obviously um, my weight also did fluctuate. I would say overall, probably um, poor self-confidence. Um, I was definitely stuck in diet culture and always dieting and always comparing myself. You know, I would go shopping with girlfriends and I'd end up buying shoes because, you know, I couldn't necessarily buy something off the rack. And and that may have been also, you know, obviously from a height standpoint, but also from a size standpoint. And um, this is kind of an odd fact about me, but I have a 20 inch difference between my waist and my hips. And so, you know, wearing jeans is quite the feat. It doesn't happen very often. I remember just thinking, you know, trying on jeans and my calves getting stuck in the dressing room and having friends pulling the jeans off of me because I couldn't even get them off of me. So, um, you know, there are struggles with being shaped <laughs> a little extra in certain spots, but, um, yeah, I, I would say that, um, I was always comparing myself to others and, um, would have periods of extreme dieting and instead of, you know, just looking in the mirror and saying, I'm beautiful the way I am. Um, there were, there were definitely a lot of years of heartache and, and, um, not accepting myself for, um, you know, who I was and, and looking at other things and not just saying what I am physically and saying, you know, I'm a wonderful daughter and I am, um, a, a wonderful woman and I am, um, you know, whether it be a, an aunt or a sister or all of the other things that um, I I think that I'm good at <laughs> and just focusing on physical appearance. And, and there's so much more to us than our physical appearance. 100%. But yet we've programmed ourselves to believe otherwise, right? And I've had so many conversations as of late where individuals have come to me in confidence and asked me, like, oh, what do you, am I good enough? Or what do you think I could, uh, if I was single, what would that look like in life? Or do you think that I, you know, I extended my reach in terms of who I married or whatever it may be. And it's just so interesting because when we have those conversations, typically the root or the foundation of the discussion is based on physical appearance. And when I press and when I ask a series of questions, uh, we talk about who we are as an individual and how we genuinely care and what these individuals bring to the table. You know, it, it's inevitably far more if you look at it as the, you know, the, the scale of, uh, of, of law or whatever, the scales, uh, and you put everything on one side versus another. I, I think that obviously you have to be physically attracted to somebody, but you could be physically attracted to somebody because they're freaking amazing inside and out, right? So going back to your point about, you know, having struggles growing up and then really finding your, your confidence in your twenties or thirties. Can you think of like uh, a significant moment where you're like, yep, I got it. Or like, yeah, like I feel good about myself now. Was there a moment in your life that you could remember that really drove that feeling for you? 
No, I wish I could say yes, but I cannot think of an exact moment. I know that that's kind of anticlimactic and probably not what you want you to no, hear. Not but at all. I've never had that like aha moment that was like, okay, you know, now I am this confident, strong woman and hear me roar. You know, I think it was, it was, it was a slow transition. You know, I, I would say that maybe one of the defining moments was, you know, just finishing school, like how, what a big, um, in terms of, you know, confidence boost, but, you know, I had worked my whole life essentially to become a physician and then just finishing residency and, and taking that, you know, big sigh of relief. Um, and, and, having, you know, everything that I had worked for, you know, you're just, you're finally at that point. Um, but in terms of something physically, no, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say, and it wasn't even, you know, even starting like an Instagram or anything like that. There's never been a, a defining moment where I was like, okay, I'm good, you know? Awesome. And you know, that's the best part about, you know, one of the things that we want to do here on the podcast is we want to showcase what can happen when you stop asking the same questions and start showing a genuine interest in others. And so literally when I go into interviews, Amber, I have no expectations um, because, you know, your story is your story. But what's interesting is, is as I listen to your story, I could definitively recall a moment for me, like growing up, I, I didn't have a lot of confidence specifically for, or with ladies or whatever. I was always the brunt of all the jokes and started as part of that was self-inflicted. I was the class clown and that was my superpower. I was going to make people laugh. And if that meant that I was going to crack a joke and make fun of myself to get a laugh out of you, well, then I was going to do that. So I had the bowl cut and, you know, <laughs> John will tell you all the stories. Um, but Obviously, uh, you're connected with John. You understand. I saw in an article that you that you were in uh, in in Kansas City Magazine that you met your boyfriend when he was wearing uh, spandex, um, and I was with him uh, in said spandex or this uh, gnarly wrestling singlet with a cat on it, which we need to talk about because uh, I understand that at one point in time you may have been a cat lover, which I really want to get into that. <laughs> but um, so. When that happened and John showed up on my door with these two wrestling singlets with cats on them, like, you know, I'm a confident fellow now. Like I work out and I, I, I feel good about my image. I feel good about not just my image uh, externally, but internally, I feel like I have a lot to offer. And, you know, the one thing I've probably struggled throughout life with is a receding hairline, but like that was more like 10 years ago when I wasn't married and I was worried about finding somebody. Whereas now I'm just completely... I'm I'm completely okay with who I am and that that liberating feeling that you have addressed in your life. So here's my point. When he came to me with this this cat singlet idea, you know, that bears all. I mean, it's not just it's not just your, you know, your your muscles or lack thereof and your face and all that stuff, but I mean, you could see your junk, you could see every your butt. I mean, you could see everything in that. And I was like, Dude, I don't know that I'm super comfortable just, you know, having my kibbles and bits hanging out for everybody to see. And uh, and it wasn't until I recalled, and many of you guys listening have heard have heard me say this, and, and I got it from a friend of mine, but don't worry about what people think about you because they don't think about you. And what was amazing is that that was my own insecurity, right? The thought of people staring at me or judging me or whatever it may be. When I come to realize that I have never had one person in my life in the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that John and I have been blessed to meet, including you, who had said, man, uh, your junk looked ridiculous, you know, <laughs> but, but that's what we struggle with, right? 
So I admire so much, we talk about these epiphany moments. That was an epiphany moment for me in, in that regard, but also this interview in that I will say that you were the first person, Amber, that I have ever said, specifically female or met or talked to, that proudly said what size she was. Like, you know, we've always been told you don't ask an age, you don't ask a size or whatever it may be. It's so cool knowing that, especially the younger generations, there are individuals out there that are so burdened by the thought of what everybody else thinks of them, that you have a, a role model like yourself that is freaking beautiful, right? Like your body image is beautiful. I've seen your pictures and you'll proudly talk about uh, what that means to you and why it's so important. So don't underestimate the value that you serve, not just with your friends, but for other individuals that are seeing what you're doing and saying, you know, maybe it's okay for me to embrace who I truly am and empowering them to love the skin mm -hmm. they're in. So as we start to wrap up, uh, I know that you have a beautiful little puppy dog uh, and Harlow, is that? Harlow, Harlo, Harlo. come here. Let's see if I can get her. Harlow. So, Harlow loves to play uh, catch. I went to your, to your condo once, which was absolutely beautiful for the record. Okay, we got her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is Harlow the first dog that you've ever owned? She is, yes. She's intently looking at me right now. I love this. <laughs> so first dog you've ever owned, prior to Harlow, you were a Himalayan cat fan? That is correct. Yes, I've had several Himalayan cats. So what, what, what prompted the transition from cat to dog? Oh, gosh. Um, so I have several friends who have French bulldogs. And um, one of my close friends, she had adopted Harlow's brother. And I saw photos of him. And I was like, oh, man, this is the dog for me. And so I just I started Googling French bulldogs and I was like crack Googling French bulldogs. And I'm like, OK, this is definitely the dog for me. And I felt like I was finally mature enough to have an animal that I'd have to take care of every day. You know, cats are kind of self-sufficient. So uh, <laughs> this is exactly why I don't have my own children. Right. Um, so <laughs> uh, I, I had reached out to the breeder and she um, still had a few dogs. And I know. Um, I, I definitely did not, I would have preferred to adopt a French bulldog, but unfortunately that can become very difficult. And I knew this was the breed that I wanted. So uh, we went out there and picked him up and I didn't want to get my hopes up, but she was, she was perfect. She kind of hid from me for a little bit. And then uh, when she warmed up, she uh, pretty much wouldn't let go of me. And then we went home. So <laughs> that's, always, that's, that's the story every time. Oh, we're just going to look, we're just going to, we're not going to go home with anything. We're just looking. And then inevitably them heartstrings start to get just tugged <laughs> on and you're through. So uh, Amber, I greatly appreciate you being on uh, founder of uh, Plaza Aesthetics and Wellness. Guys, if you want to learn more about Plaza Aesthetics and Wellness and what uh, Dr. Amber does, go to plazamedicalspa.com. Uh, they're highly rated. I strongly recommend. And I'll tell you my own personal experience as uh, our relationship progresses. We got at uh, Amber Curve Model, if you want to see uh, Amber in all her glory and uh, all the pride that we were talking about and confidence that she has built uh, throughout the years, which I hope that we all have the ability sometime in our life to feel. Uh, Dr. Amber Botros, in closing, uh, do you have anything, any words of wisdom, anybody that um, really uh, significantly impacted you in life or a quote that resonated with you as we start to, uh, to wrap up our time together? Oh man, you're really putting me on the spot. Mm. But I do think um, the Dove campaign, the Love the Skin You're In, that was one of the first large campaigns for women that did showcase women of all shapes and sizes. And I think that was kind of groundbreaking. Um, 
that is where my um, slogan for my uh, business kind of is, is extrapolated from um, and just twisted a little bit. But um, I would say that that was one of the, the campaigns where it was like, man, they really are showcasing women of all shapes and sizes. And this is really beautiful. That is really beautiful that you referred to a old Dove commercial as a uh, inspirational moment in your life. That's freaking <laughs> awesome. That is world-class marketing right there. That's what that is. So uh, one last thing that I like to ask every single guest, because we do some fun imagery for our, uh, for our uh, thumbnails and all that good stuff. What are You mentioned that you like music and you were a former musician. Um, if you think about like 80s, 90s bands, like who are your favorite artists? Like what are some of your... Uh, your favorite artists, whether they're music or, or movies, like, like what are the top three things when you think about 80s and 90s that come to you? Sure. So for me, it would definitely be like um, all of the grunge rock bands. So I um, have always been my favorite artist of all time is Chris Cornell. And unfortunately, rest in peace. I was able to see him in concert a few times, but you know, that is my always to go to playlist, Chris Cornell, anything Chris Cornell, all of, you know, whether it be Soundgarden or um, Temple of the Dog or yeah. um, I you know, some of the other bands he put together that um, I wasn't as thrilled about, but um, I, and all his solo stuff. So that, that's really, I would say if, if there's one artist that kind of formed me, it would be Chris Cornell and obviously Kurt Cobain with Nirvana. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. Those would be probably the top two, um, you know, turning into, um, you know, to the 2000s, I would say any of the large, you know, women empowerment singers, probably Beyonce is the number one. She's often, you know, I'm not necessarily jamming to grunge rock if I'm modeling. So if I'm, you know, doing a shoot with a company, usually I'd prefer to, to shoot to Beyonce, not necessarily Chris Cornell. But... Uh, <laughs> Do you have any um, uh, movies that have resonated with you throughout the years? Like, sure. Um, you know, one of my favorites is actually Legally Blonde. And, oh, what a great and flick! The reason, um, I, and anyone who knows me knows that I'm much more of a black than a pink girl. But um, I just love the empowerment that you know she is the underdog. She is the uh, you know the 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 beautiful um, you know. Uh, She's the beautiful girl that, you know, probably doesn't have any brains and that you wouldn't think would ever be successful in life. And, um, you know, she went against the odds and um, became a lawyer. And I feel like um, I do resonate somewhat somewhat with that. You know, there were always times in my life where maybe I was like, gosh, I don't know. Am I, am I smart enough to be a doctor? Am I going to be able to do this? I remember my very first biology class in college, I actually had to repeat and I remember seeing my advisor and he's like, Amber, I don't know if this is for you. And I was like, hmm, okay. So then I repeated it and got, you know, I think pretty much the highest score you could get in the class and the rest was history, you know, but it, things aren't always, things aren't always perfect. You know, you have to work really hard um, for everything in life. Um, and uh, there were, there were times definitely where I wasn't sure that I would make it to this point, but I'm here. <laughs> and look at you now. Yes, look at me now. <laughs> so it, it all culminated to being on the Fundamism podcast. Ma, we made it. <laughs> we made it, yes. <laughs> well, listen, I greatly appreciate you being on. I am terribly saddened that it took me this long to have a really fruitful conversation with you. It is the first of many to come. Uh, again, at Amber Curve Model on Instagram or plazamedicalspa.com to learn more about Dr. Amber Botros. We greatly appreciate you being on. And to the Fundamism podcast, 
podcast listener, you know we couldn't be whatever the heck we are without you. We greatly appreciate your support. Continuing to uh, to rise in between that top 100 in and out of it on Apple, iTunes. So leave a review if you're down. Go out, have some fun today, create some fun in the lives of others. And until we catch you on the flip side, be safe, smile often, and have fun. Deuces. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you.